The Interchange Podcast is brought to you by Wonder Capital, the award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S. Wonder Capital says you can earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio and combating global climate change. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash gtm. That's wonder with a U, wondercapital.com slash gtm. Wonder Capital, do well and do good. This is The Interchange, weekly conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston with Shale Khan, who's out in Oakland. Hello, Shale. Hey, Stephen. So that nuclear revival that a lot of people hope for, it's not looking so good. We got news last week that two South Carolina utilities are abandoning a half-completed nuclear project in the state after already spending $9 billion. Will it ever get finished? And how much are ratepayers on the hook? So nuclear is struggling, particularly in the U.S., and in the second half of the show, I'm going to talk to Jessica Lovering, the Director of Energy at the Breakthrough Institute, about how to rethink nuclear. What can we learn from other industries in order to foster innovation and push the industry to evolve faster and perhaps get us through that this sticking point, um, assuming you think nuclear is a technology of the future? And we'll, we'll get into that, too. First, we're going to turn our attention to natural gas, an abundant resource coincidentally responsible for eroding the economics of nuclear in the U.S. And Shale, you've had gas on the brain. What are you working on? Well, so we have the benefit now of spending a lot of time thinking about how the things that we talk about at GTM and especially things like energy storage, solar, wind, how they're going to start interacting with the rest of the electricity sector and with other commodities. And one of the things that has occupied my mind and that our team has been putting a a ton of work into recently has been this question of, well, we all believe that energy storage is going to grow on the grid. We also all believe that there's increasing need for flexibility on the grid as you add more renewables to the mix. Uh, Will energy storage serve as that flexibility? And if so, will it displace what would otherwise be the incumbent solution, which in most cases is going to be natural gas? Or stepping back even further, is energy storage a true threat to natural gas in the the short term, medium term, and long term um, in the global electricity sector? Because I think the gas producers, pipeline providers, generators have largely gotten sold on the idea of long-term decarbonization and as gas being a a major part of that, at least as a bridging fuel, if not as long-term part of the solution. But there's a question as energy storage costs fall so fast, whether energy storage can start to displace gas and in what circumstances, um, either on its own or paired with renewables. So that question has been preoccupying us. Yeah, and we are hearing from a lot of developers, storage developers, that they can beat um, the price of a peaking natural gas plant. So what are they referring to when they say that shale? And obviously this is very market dependent too. Right, exactly. And so what we wanted to do was try to pick out some specific situations in which we think there might be a near-term case for energy storage to displace or replace um natural gas in one situation or another, and then analyze the economics as best we can, leveraging both our insight into storage, but also Woodmac has just an endless volume of data on gas prices. So we tried to take on two specific cases, the first one being South Australia, 
um, which we've talked about a little bit, I think, in the past. And Elon Musk has tweeted about, so everybody knows something about it. And yeah, second, let me uh, just break in there. South Australia is in the news because Musk was um, tweeting about you know, sending a big, uh, a bunch of batteries there to help with their grid crisis. They have a bunch of grid constraints. There's this big argument about whether wind is causing problems or whether that's this uh, interconnector. And Elon said, hey, we want to deploy 100 megawatts of batteries there. And if we don't do it within a certain amount of time, they're free. And so that's why everyone's paying attention to South Australia. Right. And so setting that aside, South Australia does have an interesting challenge ahead of it, which is, so the status today is, you know, renewables already account for 40 or last year it was 46% of, of generation. That's just solar and wind. Um, so it's up over 50% probably by the end of this year and continuing to grow. Um, so we already have a lot of renewables. We have relatively high power prices. We have had some blackouts, uh, which caused this reliability crisis that led to the Tesla project, but also, uh, for peaking purposes, even when you add a bunch more wind and solar to the grid, there's still going to be a need for something to meet that evening load. It's a duck curve type phenomenon in South Australia that will persist um, even out into the next decade as we're modeling it out. And so right now, the incumbent solution in South Australia is a combination of imports, which can be pretty expensive there um, from other regions in Australia, but also gas peakers, open cycle gas turbines. So one of the questions we wanted to ask is how might energy storage stack up against a gas peaker? Could you use energy storage to displace the need for those peakers in South Australia? And the first point is um, you could do it with not that much energy storage. If you deployed just 400 megawatts of energy storage for hour duration in South Australia, you could totally displace the need for uh, both gas peakers and imports. And that's not that much. That Tesla project is 100 megawatts on its own. So first of all, you don't need that much of it. Um, today, we don't think the economics quite work yet. When you consider the cost of the battery plus the cost to charge the battery and discharge it and the line, the losses and cycling, um, it's a little bit more expensive now to do that than it would be to build a new gas peaker. But that's not going to last by our reckoning, by the middle of next decade, by 2025, um, your storage project is going to be not only cheaper than a new build gas peaker, but actually cheaper than running an existing gas peaker. I think it's important to stop here and to remind people that, uh, while not fully economic today, 2025 is not very far off when you're thinking about building new power plants that are going to last many decades, um, or build natural gas pipelines, or build out whatever infrastructure you need to support um, an increase in natural gas consumption. So this is very close. Right. And this is just one case. You know, we've seen examples of uh, energy storage starting to compete against gas peakers in the U.S. too, in California and in other places. So I think this is the the sort of first line of this battle in general between storage and gas is going to be on peaking. That is important. Um, but, you know, in terms of is this super disruptive to the gas market, it's certainly disruptive if you're a peaking generator. Uh, but also peaking is not a huge portion of total gas demand. So that doesn't get you all that far. But if you look out a little further, we tried to model this out to 2035. At that point, we think that energy storage, again, including the cost to charge, is 
going to be cheap enough that when you add it to solar, if you have an integrated solar plus storage project, at that point, it's going to be pretty competitive with a new build combined cycle gas plant, um, which means you can compete for baseload. And it may even be sooner than that, depending on what type of project you're using, what the cost of gas is going to be, and so on. So in my mind, if you're sort of drawing how this all works, if gas prices continue to stay flat or even increase as time goes on, meanwhile, energy storage prices are falling rapidly and solar prices are continuing to decline, you sort of go through these phases of first competing for peaking, then ultimately competing for baseload. And that's how you start to get real meaningful disruption. I know you don't really try to answer this in the South Australia report, but can solar plus storage or a combination of storage and renewables, can it help solve Australia's power quality crisis? Is that something that you feel like you can start to answer with this data? Well, in this case, we're looking largely at a single application, which is just sort of time shifting the renewable generation in the middle of the day into the evening to meet peak. So what we're assuming in a lot of this is that what you charge the battery with is your overgeneration of wind and solar, your curtailed renewables. That makes it a fair bit cheaper as you get to higher penetrations. That doesn't really address this reliability crisis directly. And actually what's interesting about that Tesla project that's getting built there is that it's not trying to do what we're modeling here. It's a hundred megawatt, I think it's a hundred 30 or less than 130 megawatt hour project, which means it's pretty short duration. So it's going after a shorter duration application, which is more directly relevant to the reliability question. Um, there's a market for that, I think, in the short term, but over the long term, you know, that's not the big total addressable market for energy storage. The big total addressable market is going to be time shifting that solar generation or the wind generation um, so that it better aligns with load. Your, your other report looked at the application of storage um, and renewables in island markets. There's a reason why we've seen some of the early Tesla Solar City storage projects in Hawaii, uh, a state that has historically burned a lot of oil for electricity generation, which is why solar has taken off there. Why Richard Branson, of course, is building a microgrid on Necker Island. Um, and why he's taken a real interest in um, powering island countries with renewables. Um, you know, these are places where power is extremely expensive. They're burning a lot of oil or importing a lot of liquefied natural gas. And so you really dug into the economics of storage for, for these markets. What'd you find? Yeah, so Tom Hegarty from our team has been doing this really great work that's that's going to come out in a couple of weeks. First of all, let's talk about island grids. Um, we know about Hawaii and Necker Island and some others, but it's worth noting that we estimate there are about 3,600 island grids globally. There are a lot of them. Um, they're small, generally, but a good portion of the population, especially in Southeast Asia, are on these island grids. And because it's difficult to power these island grids, difficult to get um, the fuel that you need, you know, a lot of them run entirely or largely on oil, on diesel specifically, uh, which means that the power prices are really, really high. In, the, in many cases, they can be 30 cents a kilowatt hour or more. So this is a challenge. There, It's also dirty, you know, diesel, both from a local pollution standpoint and from a climate change standpoint. So it's ripe for change. 
Um, and one of the emerging solutions that has been proposed increasingly as time has gone on recently has been LNG, liquefied natural gas, because we're seeing so much more of that in general. And because there's been some innovation in floating storage and regasification units. So you could actually um, have LNG at small scale for a specific island grid. So there's been an argument that LNG is going to start to replace diesel on a lot of these islands. And our question was, um, is there a point where solar or solar plus storage could either work with or replace the LNG? So we sort of imagined a representative island with a hundred megawatt load um, currently running entirely on diesel. And we basically asked the question, what if you wanted to displace the majority of that diesel with something? And so we looked at a bunch of different options, either ranging from keeping the diesel engine running to purely an LNG fired engine, so pure gas, to combos, solar plus the diesel, solar plus the LNG, and then just solar plus storage on its own. And the short version of the findings is today, um, if you can get the infrastructure in place, an LNG fired engine is generally going to be the cheapest around $100 a megawatt hour on average to run. So it may be the best solution today. Again, you have all sorts of challenges um, in infrastructure and in fuel resource availability and so on. But that may be the most economic option if it's possible today. You can add solar um, to that, and it doesn't really increase or decrease the overall cost a whole lot. So you can combine solar plus LNG and still displace the diesel, and, and that's more or less a wash. If you wanted to just do solar plus storage instead of the gas, it's more expensive today. Again, storage costs are pretty high. But if you're looking out to the middle of next decade again, 2025, that starts to flip pretty significantly, largely because um, Woodmax expectations of LNG prices are that they sort of increase marginally. Meanwhile, solar and storage costs are going to continue to fall. So similar trend line to what we see basically everywhere else. Um, so apart from having the benefit of not requiring as much infrastructure, these regasification units or anything like that, um, we're going to get to the point by the middle of the next decade where for these island grids, um, and in, in some cases earlier than then, where for these island grids, actually adding solar plus storage is going to be the cheapest option to displace a lot of that diesel. Aha, there's that 2025 date again, uh, in a very important moment for storage and solar. Um, so does this mean that gas is doomed, Shale? No, it does not mean gas is doomed for a bunch of reasons. One being, you know, gas is not exclusively used in power generation. The second being that we're looking at some pretty specific cases. I mean, we're, we're specifically choosing South Australia and island grids because we know those are cases in which energy storage is going to compete earlier. So it's going to take a much longer time elsewhere. Uh, but even beyond that, I mean, we're talking as if sort of solar plus storage is going through this wave of innovation and gas is largely just sitting there twiddling its thumbs, waiting to get disrupted. And that's obviously not what's really happening. There's a good piece that uh, Julian Spector wrote for GTM last week about GE's um, sort of working on how to make its gas plants, using its software platform to make its gas plants um, more flexible. And, you know, one of the theoretical applications you could get to is a point where there's a, like a CCGT, a, a base load or a shoulder gas plant that also can be a peaker. 
you know, that can sort of act as a hybrid plant because it's got better controls and more flexibility. So there's, you know, there's going to be innovation on the gas side as well. I think what's exciting about this is not the gas is going to go away or that it's going to get entirely displaced anytime soon, but that this is a real, this is going to become a real area of competition for any flexibility need on the grid. Ultimately energy storage and gas are going to, in some cases be friends and in some cases they're going to compete. Um, and hopefully that'll make them both a little bit more innovative. Okay. I think that about does it for our look into the world of gas. Um, that's a, a peek at, what GTM is cooking up with Wood McKenzie now that we've got the uh, combination of two excellent sources of data. Uh, when, when are those reports going to be out, Shale? Um, both of them probably late August. So have a look after vacation season ends. Nice. All right. Well, let's shift our attention to nuclear. Um, you know, no matter what you think about nuclear, whether you believe it should be the underpinning of any sensible carbon reduction strategy, or you believe it's unnecessarily dangerous and expensive, there's no doubt that it's facing a bit of an identity crisis. Um, nuclear generation is dropping around the world. Plants are closing faster than they're being built. And, and the new plants that are getting built are often way over budget. And in the case of South Carolina last week, um, so far over budget that the plant was abandoned. Assuming you believe nuclear should and can be a powerful tool for decarbonization, how do we fix this problem? Or as my guest, Jessica Lovering, the director of energy at the Breakthrough Institute, asked another way, how do we make nuclear innovative? She wrote a report on this recently, and we covered that at GTM. We'll link to the story in the show notes. You know, basically, can we borrow lessons from other capital-intensive industries that foster innovation? And in this conversation, we explored lessons from NASA, from the aircraft industry, and from pharmaceuticals. Now, passions always run high when we talk about nukes at GTM. And I suspect our comment board will light up over this topic. If you're a person who just can't stand the idea of nuclear, um, I suggest you just go in with an open mind, right? I think we want to touch on some important challenges here that are worth exploring, no matter how you feel about nukes. And there are some interesting lessons from other industries to apply to this very difficult and struggling sector. So let's get into it. I started off by asking Jessica to characterize the state of nuclear today, which is not good in the U.S., better in other countries, but generally, you know, not looking great around the world. And it really comes down to the, I think the main hurdle for nuclear is cost. And it's a tricky one because even with these uh, projects in the U.S. or in Europe that are extremely over budget and really expensive, you hear numbers in the billions, 10 billions, uh, if you actually look at how much it will cost for them to generate electricity, it's still quite competitive, uh, especially when you're comparing them with fossil fuels. And if you're interested in low carbon energy, it's quite a bargain. But, and this is a big caveat, um, those upfront costs, the initial cost of construction is huge. And it's really hard for utilities to handle that burden, especially uh, since the 80s and 90s, this big trend in most Western countries of um, deregulating their power markets, liberalizing their power sector has caused, it's a big challenge to build really anything big. Um, it would be equally difficult to build a large coal plant or a large hydro plant. Um, it would be difficult to build a very large renewables plant, except there's a lot of support and help for, for specific renewables. But for anything that has this large upfront cost, 
uh, it's difficult and it's difficult to finance and it's difficult for utilities to take that that financial risk. If you look at the cost of nuclear power plants over the last couple of decades, one could conclude that nuclear has a negative learning curve. And you have said, no, that's not actually true. It's not necessarily the materials cost or something inherent in nuclear power plants. It's, you know, it's uh, the licensing problems. It's sort of the inconsistent way that people are building plants as a result. Um, Does nuclear have a negative learning curve? And if not, why? What I will say is that I don't think learning curves are the appropriate way to think about nuclear costs for how we've done nuclear in the past. Because the the framing or the, the metric of learning curves is really designed for assembly line products or manufactured products where you have um, the same people, the same firm building a lot of a single design like aircraft um, or automobiles or today learning curves work well for solar panels from a specific factory or wind turbines. That's where learning curves are a good metric for understanding um, cost trends. But for nuclear, historically, um, and especially today, you've had, the plants are built much more um, like cathedrals or like major bridges. They're not a product, and every single one is different. uh, And they're all very complicated with a lot of different actors. So you might have a single, say, company like Westinghouse who has licensed it designed to be built at many sites uh, and they might be you know constructing the sort of reactor core but you're having it built by um, in the US dozens of different uh, firms um, operated and owned by hundreds of different utilities uh, and very different um, sets of construction workers working on each project so there's really no room for that traditional, learning framework because you don't have any of the same people on on any aspect of it and Uh, and we you know in the vogel plant we saw contractors who really had zero experience in nuclear trying to tackle that project which was one of the major reasons for the design problems yeah and that's also it's even true at at a country level we have you know the u.s is building its first plants in three decades with um vogel and summer and similar in european countries um, and there just isn't that industrial knowledge of how to build these plants. So it's it's understandable that they're having so many troubles and going over budget. Now, however, um, big shift is I think what's really needed is transitioning how we build nuclear and how we design nuclear towards more of a product so that learning curves actually would be accurate and that you would see real learning by doing. Um, and that means shifting the entire industry towards a factory-produced model. Now, this could be assembling the entire reactor on an assembly line if it's really small or doing major subcomponents in a factory and then sort of putting them together at the site. Um, But that's a major shift in how we've built nuclear in the past. It's not unprecedented um, for, for a complex technology like this. Um, but it would be a very different way of doing nuclear. And I think if nuclear makes this shift successfully towards a product model rather than a large infrastructure project model, um, you could start to see learning curves being an appropriate way to measure the success in, in cost declines. 
And that product model is what you describe in your recent report on making nuclear innovative. So I want to unpack that a little bit more and understand what exactly that productized nuclear sector looks like. And and you wrote in that report, um, a highly innovative nuclear sector will require tilting the playing field away from large incumbent nuclear firms and towards smaller, more entrepreneurial startups. Um, so we can get into how exactly you do that, but let's let's talk a little bit more about what the nuclear industry would look like technologically. What would those products actually be? Those standardized components and the ultimate reactor designs. Um, how would that? How differently would that look from today's industry dominated by light water reactors? Yeah, so it it could look very different, and it could also look very similar. So, for example, in the in the short term, we have New Scale which is a U.S. company based in Oregon that has submitted their license for a small modular reactor. And it looks very similar in some ways to the reactors we already have. It's a light water reactor. Um, Nothing crazy or different about it, but it is very small. It's 50 megawatts. um, And the idea is to manufacture it in a central location, um, ship it by truck or rail to the site, and sort of plug it in to um, a larger power plant that would be maybe a six-pack or a 12-pack of these small reactors. So um, there it's sort of a a hybrid of the old model and the new model where the power plant is still um, sort of big. It's uh, 300 to 600 megawatts, but the individual reactor is small enough to um, be transported easily and to be manufactured modularly. Uh, So... In the short term, I think we'll we'll see how successful they are, and um, that could be a really good model just to overcome these initial kind of economic hurdles. Um, companies or utilities can make the investment in smaller chunks, um, and also a 300 to 600 megawatt reactor um, or megawatt power plant is is nothing to sneeze at. It's much smaller than most of the nuclear plants that we have today which are more around 1,000 megawatts. So it's smaller. It's a better fit for sort of replacing coal plants or um, gas turbines, um, but parts of it are made um, modularly. So that's that's one route that looks a little more similar. There's a lot of companies, um, especially in the U.S., there's over 50 companies working on advanced reactor technologies, and there's a huge variety uh, of designs and um I'm always really impressed just with how many smart, young, creative people are working on these designs. There's um, a lot of things maybe people have heard of, like molten salt, um, thorium, sodium-cooled, gas-cooled reactors. And um, there's lots of different uh, pros and cons of each of these designs, but almost all of them are aiming to be or designing their reactors to be much smaller than the reactors that um, we're building today. Yeah, you referenced that list of 50 startups that uh, Third Way had cataloged. Yeah. And it's, um, the, I mean, the design types are really diverse. You mentioned the molten salt reactors, there's the high temperature gas reactors, the pebble bed modular reactor. Um, there's probably five or six different technologies, fusion, of course, that, that, um, both large and small startups and, and national labs have been working on some for decades that have been sort of sitting on the shelf. Um, so I, I guess a good example of the of the reactor design that tries to fit into a current framework is what New Scale is doing. And, and New Scale has 
re they recently put out a white paper um, looking at how to use its reactor to load follow renewables. So how do you make it a companion to intermittent renewables, um, which is explicitly saying, hey, we know we're going to fit into this new distributed variable grid. So how do we design a reactor that that will actually be a, a, a a good actor in that world. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's important to recognize that you still you still hear a lot of the sort of old guard and nuclear kind of complaining about renewables and saying, um, you know, if they weren't getting those subsidies, nuclear would be the obvious choice or um, as sort of framing it as a fight between renewables and nuclear. And I think um, these younger companies and these smaller companies are thinking of are just looking at what the market looks like and what the market, what utilities want. And they want something that plays well with renewables and utilities are building renewables for a lot of reasons. And so designing your nuclear products so that it can be a friend to renewables rather than you're going to be competing against renewables, which that's just making it harder for yourself. If you have to compete against fossil fuels and renewables, uh, that's just making more enemies. So I think it's very smart for a lot of these companies are looking at, okay, how can we design a nuclear that does load following better, that is more economic to run for, say, peaking or um, variable load. Um, and that's a much more way to make your product more attractive to utilities. Let's take a momentary break to talk about our sponsor, Wonder Capital. Thanks so much to Wonder for supporting the show. Wonder Capital's online investment platform allows you to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S. Earn up to 8.5% annually while also diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. With Wonder's help, individual investors like you financed more than 50 large-scale solar projects in 2017. Those projects will offset the CO2 emissions from 14.2 million pounds of coal burned in the first year alone. Coal is on its way out, solar is on its way in, and it's time for you to capitalize. You can begin investing with as little as $1,000. And best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't charge any investor fees. To learn more, create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash GTM. That is wonder with a U, wondercapital.com slash GTM. Wonder Capital, do well and do good. Yeah, that's a good opportunity for you to paint the the world that breakthrough sees like where do these technologies fit into the new distributed grid because undoubtedly renewables are going to continue to grow and that's going to change how operators and utilities and customers interact and i'm just curious like um do you see nuclear as a dominant technology do you see it as a partner um what what would be the ideal mix of nuclear and renewables on a decarbonized grid? We don't have specific numbers, and I don't think it's up for us to decide. And I think this is a mistake that a lot of academics make is saying, okay, we're going to be 100% this or 80% this. Um, I think our perspective is definitely that um, it's, a, it's a big challenge to decarbonize the entire power sector, but it's that's the goal. And that's what we're striving for. So seeing that we haven't been as successful as we'd like, and we haven't decarbonized as fast as we'd like, um, just recognizing that we need all options on the table, including renewables, nuclear, um, 
hydro, eventually CCS, natural gas in the short term, um, and recognizing that everyone needs to get better. So there's challenges, there's technological challenges with renewables or reliability challenges with renewables. We need to innovate to um, solve those problems. And then there's economic challenges or size challenges or public perception challenges with nuclear. And we need to work on solving those so that um, solving climate change or decarbonizing the power sector becomes easier and faster. So I think from our perspective, we we think there needs to be more investment in making all the technologies um, cheaper, faster, better. And then the um, not just the market, not just utilities, but communities will decide what's the best fit for them across the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is so diverse and recognizing that different energy sources are going to be more feasible in different places. Um, you know, renewables, different renewables, wind and solar have um, geographic constraints. They work better in certain places. And nuclear is going to be face maybe different political constraints. So it's more popular in certain areas. Uh, and it might be better for communities that have a lot of heavy manufacturing or places that are much colder. Um, like there's a lot of interest out of smaller Alaskan communities, say, for kind of off-grid nuclear. Um, and just recognizing that the way to kind of respect everyone's um, different values and different um, goals for what they want their energy system to look like is really about making more options available for them. So not taking options off the table, not saying you can't have this, um, but saying here, here are better options, here's a better sort of toolbox for you to use um, and letting them decide. So I don't know what the ultimate mix is going to be. I think it's going to be sort of an even spread uh, across all technologies. I think it wouldn't be, um, if we're serious about reducing emissions, I think it would be reasonable for nuclear to increase its share of electricity, maybe up to, say, 40%. Um, I think renewables will definitely increase their share. Uh, it could be... Um, we talk about this capacity factor limit, but they could, you know, go up to 30 or 40 percent. Um, I think natural gas is going to play an important role for a while, um, but I'm not sure how big a share is going to be and what happens to coal. But we hope that um, coal will will decline as these other sources kind of grow. I know that um, you know part of your role is to be aspirational and to try to get people thinking about this differently. But do you really realistically see a world in which nuclear politically could get itself to forty percent of the the energy mix in this country? Yeah, and I think that's sort of one of the one of the things we look at is there nuclear comes with a lot of baggage that renewables don't, um, which makes predicting the future a little more challenging. But I part of why, um, we've gotten really excited around advanced nuclear and small nuclear is it, it does change how people think about nuclear um, because, one, the size, um, thinking about a nuclear reactor that could fit on the back of a truck is very different than these huge projects. And I think that makes people um, and politicians think a little differently about the risk and about um, how much control they have over the technology. And I think also these advanced reactors, um, a lot of them, you know, use different fuels, have much different um, safety. We like to 
use the phrase, a lot of them are walkaway safe, so they don't need that sort of active human control in the case of an accident. Um, and they rely much more on fundamental physics for their safety rather than a lot of complex engineering. Um, so I don't think that the, the political hurdles are impossible. I think having um, new exciting technologies helps. If you look at sort of um, one of the case studies we did on commercial spaceflight, having that company, SpaceX, really lead the way and get people excited around reusable spacecraft and watching launches really changes the public's perception of, is it worth us to go to space? Um, should we be spending money on space travel? Should we be spending public money on launching things into space? Um, changes that conversation. I will say, well, from from the, you know, where is nuclear share going and could it increase? It really depends on the success of some of these early um, projects. So what happens with new scale? I think there's a lot that would need to change um, system-wide and policy-wide and also um, just seeing some success with these new designs. Uh, but I don't think it's out of the question. Well, let's talk about what we could change. You give, you give a few examples in this report and you look to the pharmaceutical industry, to aircraft manufacturing, to space travel, to fracking. And they offer a number of interesting examples um, and, and lessons for the future nuclear industry. And I guess it's probably helpful to start with space travel. Um, you mentioned SpaceX, and NASA, of course, has started a program many years ago to try to get uh, to try to encourage private firms to uh, bring folks into space, and they started comp- a competitive process that enabled private sector companies to come in and compete for awards. And of course, um, you know, this sort of competitive process has worked in many other industries as well. How do you envision something like that being constructed for advanced nuclear reactors? How how nuclear was done in the past, and, and this is true for many um, industries that have a government involvement, was um, there would be government contracts for large projects and um, the government agency would be very um, sort of hands-on about the technology and and what they wanted and what they were willing to fund. Um, So you'd spend a lot of money getting a single uh, product. And um, what NASA was looking at when they were um, thinking about designing um, a new space shuttle or a new launch system is that they, they really wanted to have more options and uh, rather than just funding a sort of $25 billion project for a new shuttle um, where they'd have just the one design that they had to work with. So what they did is they wanted to really invest in the whole ecosystem of um, commercial spaceflight from the ground up and incentivize a lot more um, companies to get into the market. So it wasn't that there's a lot of spaceflight companies and we want to kind of help them um, grow and help them compete, they needed to actually make the companies in the first place um, or at least get people to start spaceflight companies and launch companies. Um, And they were very successful in that. A lot of firms got started in the early 2000s and 2010s um, because of NASA's program. And some of them failed and some of them were successful and SpaceX was very successful Um, But it was a very different policy than what government agencies had done before. 
And it was very focused on both creating um, companies that NASA could eventually contract with for services, which they've done since, but also stimulating the commercial sector so that it would be successful just on commercial terms so that these companies um, weren't just reliant on NASA money for launches, but also were competitive so that they could do um, private launches like for communication satellite. We had lost our edge in that space. Most commercial launches were uh, being done by European firms, Chinese firms, Russian firms, uh, and the U.S. wasn't involved in the commercial launch services at all. Uh, and NASA really, through its um, program and through its investment in the whole innovation ecosystem, uh, completely changed that around. Now, um, SpaceX typically launches um, more than most other countries combined. So that's a huge turnaround in just um, five or 10 years. Um, so how would that work for the nuclear sector? So what NASA did is they said, we want um, companies that can do these four milestones. So launch something here, launch something here, how to be pressurized, unpressurized. They had different goals that they wanted. And once a company could show that they or could demonstrate that they achieved that goal, that they had something in low Earth orbit, that they um, launched pressurized cargo, they would get the money once they were done. And this is um, a m very smart way for NASA to do it because if a company fails, they don't have to pay anything. So it saves them a lot of money. Um, and it also, the big thing is it gets, um, these companies have to raise a lot of private investment. Um, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but the amount of private money that SpaceX had to raise to the point where they could um, complete the goals and get money from NASA uh, was huge. And now they're able to contract with NASA, and so they are getting funding up front to complete certain targets, um, but after only after they've proven successful in what they can do. So I think um, it's a little trickier with um Nuclear, because building the whole demonstration is is more complicated, but I think having um, sort of goals and tests like that with awards at the end um, would be a very novel model for nuclear, and I think it could be very successful. Because there already are um, these, you know, 50-plus companies working on advanced designs, um, there's already a, a lot of competition, so saying... Um, build a small-scale demonstration of your reactor that um, does this, does this, meets this target, can withstand this sort of um, temperature challenge or coolant challenge, then we'll give you this chunk of money. One of the criticisms of small modular nuclear is that they do not offer the same economies of scale as, say, a, a large-scale light water reactor. And um, you actually point to the aircraft sector, where large jets um, really failed, the, 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 the large designs failed because um, they were just far too expensive. They, they weren't seeing enough sales to make up for the cost to design the jets. And once they started developing smaller designs, they could pump out more models they were seeing higher sales, and they actually improved because of economies of scale due to higher volume manufacturing. Yeah, that's definitely true in aircraft. There's been um, – it is cheaper to build a bigger plane, and you could build bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, but we're seeing sort of the failure of um, the Airbus A380 was that um, very similar to nuclear – 
it wasn't what the market wanted. Airlines, um, there were only a, a few airlines that actually wanted those really large aircraft. Uh, and there were only a few airports that could handle those large aircraft. And what the airlines really wanted was um, more nimble aircraft. So they do want large because uh, you get economies of scale, but they didn't want too large because it was inflexible with the system they had. So they wanted um, sort of more, much more medium-sized airplanes um, that gave them much more flexibility with routes and could do this sort of um, hub and spoke model. So that's what airlines wanted and the aircraft manufacturers have uh, now designed planes more towards um, what the airlines wanted. And because these airlines are, these aircraft are huge, but they're still manufactured on an assembly line. You can order them and they come at a specific time and at a set price and um, they're designed kind of in collaboration with a lot of the airlines. Um, for example, Boeing has a group of airlines that they consult with when they're designing aircraft so that it really meets the needs of the airlines. So, um, but it is interesting to see that those, um, the trade-off between economies of scale and actually flexibility in smaller designs. Moving on to the pharmaceutical industry, you point to the licensing process. So what the heck can nuclear learn from pharmaceuticals? And, and you show that this staged licen lic licensing process where, um, you know, startups can they can get funding at different points through the process. They've got uh, different levels of trials. Um, the, these these steps offer them a chance to pull in more money and prove themselves over time. Um, can you just explain how that process works and how it potentially could be applied to nuclear? The it really it comes in with this um, similar thing with the commercial space flight with um, how you can raise money. Uh, from private investors and sort of satisfy their concern about mm -hmm. risk. So with this, with the stage licensing for pharmaceuticals, um, the FDA has sort of a, a rigid set of um, different kinds of tests that you need to, experiments that you need to do with new drugs, uh, and then sort of an increasing level of um, scrutiny through different trial mechanisms, uh, clinical trials. And what this allows is that um, at the very earlier stages, you don't need that much money um, if you're a company, if you're doing sort of experiments in the lab. A lot of these drugs originally come from um, universities uh, and the public sector. So once you are confident in the really early stage, you can take it to FDA for um, for approval of, of those first stages. And if you get approval, that's a really great thing to take to investors to show that you have that. So it's like uh, reducing the risk um, for an investor because they know that the FDA signed off on this first stage. So then you can raise um, a certain amount of money and you know how much money you need to get to the next stage. So um, you can say, we've been approved at this stage, now we need this much money to get to the next stage. And then if you're successful, um, you take it back to the FDA and they approve you on stage two. Uh, and then that's, again, what you take take to investors to raise more money. With nuclear right now, it's pretty much all or nothing and it's kind of a black box. So um, you can spend uh, a very large sum of money um, getting your design ready for NRC licensing and 
um, there's a lot of there's earlier stages you c- not stages but there's earlier process you can do with NRC conversations you can have um, but you have to pay for it all so um, when you finally submit your design to NRC it takes several years for them to review it and then you could just get um, a no and you have to kind of go back to the drawing board so it's it's challenging to raise that much money um, say $500 million for getting your design ready to license um, on the private market if you don't, if the outcome is that uncertain, because you just have one yes or no, you don't have these um, five stages of yes or no's. The Obama administration was fairly committed to nuclear. And of course, Ernest Moniz, the former energy secretary, is uh, a major proponent of nuclear power. A physicist himself knows all about uh, everything there is to know about nuclear. And, you know, they, the, the, the Obama administration put a lot of money behind helping support uh, research and development of technologies at national labs. And, um, you know, despite that amount of money and that stated support, we're still talking about some pretty basic reforms here. So um, I'm just curious, what did the Obama administration do that helped the industry how long is it going to be before we start to see a material impact of the money that it budgeted to support nuclear R&D? So um, um, the Obama administration did do a lot on nuclear, and it was a very um, exciting time if you were in the industry to have that support. But um, these, these policies and these investments take a lot of time. So if I can just... Um, ping one of our other case studies on innovation um, to reflect this point. So for shale gas, um, we think of it as something that really came out of nowhere all of a sudden in the mid-2000s, but it was actually the result of 30 years of government investment in R&D, demonstrations, um, production tax credit for unconventional gas. And so just recognizing how long that took and how much um, how many different kinds of government support that took to now have something that's this huge boom for the economy um, so thinking about that with nuclear the Obama administration got the ball rolling on advanced nuclear and got the conversation going and got some investment in but it was um, just the very first baby steps and pretty small scale and so we need to if the these advanced nuclear designs are going to um, get to commercialization and be successful. There needs to be a continued investment and um, focus on how to improve the innovation system and how to improve the government's role in innovation for nuclear. So I will say, so one thing um, the Obama administration did through the national, through the DOE and the national labs was the GAIN program, which is gateway for acceleration of innovation in nuclear. And um, GAIN does a lot of different things, but um, it invests in a, at the early stages of R&D, but it gives money to, um, to private companies for specific um, technological challenges they're working on. And um, more importantly, one thing it does that we think is really important is it helps get private companies into the national labs to use their facilities. So the national labs are a great resource if you want to do um, experiments with nuclear, tests with nuclear, test your fuel, test your components. Um, But it can be somewhat 
complicated to access those facilities and sometimes expensive. Um, so GAIN tried to make it easier for companies to come in and use those facilities and also um, started a voucher program for um, smaller companies with less money to help um, fund their access to the national labs. And a lot of different companies are taking advantage of this. Um, and if you go and visit a national lab, you might hear about different experiments from um, companies testing their parts. And so that's really exciting. Um, and another thing that GAIN did, which um, was also done in, in NASA's commercial spaceflight program is get uh, companies to work together um, which is really important for these emerging technologies where um, there's a lot of overlap in the challenges they face. So GAIN uh, sort of grouped companies into sort of technological families like molten salt, um, fast reactors, and gets them to convene and talk through what their shared challenges are. And then that helps GAIN decide where they want to um, put more money. So rather than give money to just a single company to solve that problem, but then it doesn't help the others, they can maybe invest in a program at a national lab to overcome that challenge and then make that solution available to, to all the companies. Or if there's a specific test they need on a new metal, um, they can do that at the national lab and then um, give the information to all those companies. So having the companies um, talk together, work together, um, Eventually, they'll be competing against each other when, when their products are ready. But for now, um, it's much more efficient and much more cost effective to figure out what those, um, those shared challenges are and, um, and work on them together. And that's something that um, NASA tried to do with the commercial spaceflight company, companies. They would have these um, industry days where they would have vendors uh, meet with all the different competitors for um, NASA's uh, commercial spaceflight uh, program, and they would also bring in lawyers and NASA engineers to advise the companies to talk about um, liability, to help them work through the application process. Um, so kind of um, helping and advising these companies to get them through what is a complicated process of working with the government. I wanted to wrap up by asking about Breakthrough Institute itself. And because a lot of critics say that you are, you know, nuclear industry shills, that you take nothing but money from the nuclear industry, and you're basically a front group. Um, I'd love for you to talk about your funding sources, your stance on nuclear and renewables, and, and how you see all those together and what you consider yourselves. Yeah. So, I mean, just first of all, we we don't take any money from the nuclear industry or any industry that might have a say in our work. Um, we post all of our funding sources on our website if people are interested, but we're entirely funded by philanthropy. So kind of family foundations, um, organizations that are mostly interested in environmental uh, issues. Um, and that allows us to be very independent in our thinking and in our research. Um, so that's a, a very great thing to have if you're doing kind of research in, in controversial areas. And um, as we're, as we say on our website, and, and just as we always say, our mission is really focused on, um, on improving the environment and also 
um, improving the standard of living for people around the world. So we're very clear with that. That is our goal. And when we're working on research questions, we are looking at what are the best ways um, to reduce pollution, to reduce um, greenhouse gas emissions. And that's sort of the framing that we're coming through. So um, we we do talk a lot about nuclear because we we think it's been very successful in the past at reducing emissions, but we also have done a lot of work in the past on renewable policy, uh, on how natural gas has replaced um, coal and how that's been beneficial for different environmental reasons. And we definitely see everything is going to need to work together. And um, renewables have a really important role to play, but we also think nuclear has a very important role to play. And I think most people would come to that conclusion when they look at just the scale of the challenge of climate change. And um, so I think critics who who think that we're shows for nuclear or um, are only care about nuclear um, haven't read enough of our work, um, but also should should talk to us because it, they'll see that we're much more um, open and we're really just pragmatic about finding solutions that work for the most people. Again, that was Jessica Lovering, the director of energy at the Breakthrough Institute, coming to us from Oakland. Um, I'll be interested to see the comment board there. I'm sure people will have a lot of thoughts. I know that uh, most of our nuclear articles get um, quite a lot of comment traction. So curious to see what people think about you know the next phase of the nuclear industry, uh, if there is a healthy one. So, Shale, uh, good talking to you this week. Thanks for teaching us about what's going on in the world of storage as it relates to natural gas. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, thank you, as always. Before we go, I just want to remind everyone to help us out and give us a rating and review on iTunes. You know, it's definitely very important for helping people find the show, of course. I know I've said that a number of times, but I can't stress it enough. Also, send us your feedback and your show ideas to podcast at greentechmedia.com. We got a bunch of responses to the Jacobson and Clack stuff. There were a few that we didn't get uh, to respond to yet. Hopefully, we'll, we will be able to respond. But just know, if you're listening to this and you sent us a note, we do appreciate your feedback, good and bad. Honestly, we do. Thanks a lot. Um, and we will catch you all next week with Shale Khan. I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Interchange, weekly conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media.